0: All right, Acts chapter 7, verse 2. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. but I will judge the nation that they serve said God and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place and he gave him the covenant of circumcision and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs Caiaphas has asked Stephen what do you have to say for this Or in our vernacular, what do you say for yourself? Stephen responds to the question from Caiaphas with a sermon for the ages. And as we unpack the sermon, we're going to find that Stephen not only defends the new temple, the new Torah, and the worship that is in spirit and in truth, he proclaims and models Christ and his gospel for the infant church and for us. Make No mistake, as you begin reading Stephen's sermon, that Stephen is not looking for acquittal. He well knows the fate of the last defendant that stood before this Sanhedrin. Before it's over, Stephen will stake his own life on the truth claims of that last defendant. Stephen responds to the question by giving the Sanhedrin a lesson in redemptive history. Here's where we find out why those who challenged Stephen in the synagogues could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Like the apostles, Stephen displays a mastery of the Old Testament that not only confounded his critics, but in the wake of their inability to respond, angered them to rage. To their consternation, Stephen schools the Sanhedrin on their own history. Stephen responds to the charges, those two charges, one against the temple, one against Moses and the law, with an appeal to five major figures in Old Testament history who represent four major historical periods in Israel's history. His charge, the first one, was that he wanted to destroy the temple where God's glory and presence resided. So, Stephen begins his response with the God of glory. <laughs> Already he's hedging his argument. Stephen zeroes in on the heart of the accusation that he has denigrated the place of residence of God's glory. But as he unpacks redemptive history, he's pushing the residence of that glory further back than the temple. He is going back further in Israel's history suggesting that there are more places for the residence of God's glory than simply the temple. And Stephen responds that in calling Abraham God's presence with Abraham long before God's presence was with Abraham long before there was a temple, long before there was a nation, even before Abraham left Mesopotamia for the promised land. There was no temple, no law, no land, no sacrifices, no nation, yet Abraham enjoyed God's presence. Stephen recounts Abraham's history as one of a nomad, resting on God's promises of his presence, a possession, and a people. Abraham, if you track his history throughout Genesis, is a man of constant motion, looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. He had no inheritance and no son, yet was still looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. Land was not of the utmost importance to Abraham. Pointing away from possession of the land, Stephen reminds his hearers that Abraham had nothing from God but a promise and a presence. Even though he had no land and no temple, Abraham was a worshiper because God is a God whose worship is not tied to a land, not tied to a building. In fact, God's calls to Abraham was without a temple in order to bring him into a land where there would be a temple. Not only was there no temple, as J. Julius Scott notes, Stephen believed that God's promise to Abraham was not primarily territorial because Abraham had no inheritance, not even a foot length. Location is immaterial because God did not need a temple to appear to Abraham outside of the promised land, even before he set foot in it. Before there was a holy land and a holy temple, there was a ho- and before there was a holy nation... Abraham had God's presence. second figure that Stephen appeals to is Joseph, verse 9. This is what the Word of God proclaims to us. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with them and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him a ruler over Egypt and all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Stephen not only continues to defend his defense of the gospel, now he begins his descent into the valley of the shadow of death as far as this Sanhedrin is concerned. You know, it's one thing to defend yourself against the charges. It's quite another to return the indictment back on to the judges. At this point, one begins to wonder aloud, Do you know what you're doing, Stephen? Is this really what you want? Did you kiss your wife and hug your kids before you came into the Sanhedrin? The turn that Stephen takes in this story with Joseph is more than a rash statement made in the heat of the moment. This has clarity. This has comprehension. This has composure, and it is calculated. Stephen has begun his own indictment, and he's begun his own indictment on to the Sanhedrin. When Stephen is done with this indictment of those who accuse him that are his judge and jury, the church and the history of Christianity will never be the same Before a court that smells blood, Stephen uses as his defense God's orchestration of redemptive history. Stephen begins this paragraph in regard to Joseph by noting three acts of God. God rescued Joseph from his afflictions, gave him wisdom and favor with Pharaoh, and made him governor over Egypt and Pharaoh's household. In pointing out these three acts, Stephen is drawing his audience into the Old Testament story and by way of typological allusion, drawing a line to Jesus. Already now there are hints of Peter's sermon. This Jesus God raised up, exalted at the right hand of God, God has made him both Lord and Christ. The typological allusion continues as Stephen points out that Joseph was rejected by the patriarchs. And this is where he's entering dangerous territory. Foreigners did not reject Joseph. Joseph's own flesh and blood rejected Joseph. Stephen is speaking of a common history here. And he's going to use that common history against the Sanhedrin. Stephen can still hear Christ who lamented in Luke 13, 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The Jewish people rejected Christ as Messiah, but that rejection came with a long history of rejecting God's messengers going all the way back to Joseph. It's interesting that Stephen interprets Joseph's rejection this way. Do you remember what Joseph's brothers said to him? Here comes this dreamer. Let's toss him into the pit and see what becomes of his dreams. Joseph's brothers rejected him because Joseph was a messenger from God proclaiming a message saturated, uh, saturated with echoes of the gospel that someday Joseph would be their ruler and redeemer. Those dreams are not a passing fancy, as some commentators would have us believe, but revelation from God to which God expected an allegiance. Joseph suffered as a result of that rejection. Joseph was sold into Egypt as a slave. He was rescued out of the pit of suffering and then exalted as ruler and redeemer. Despite the best efforts of his brothers to thwart God's purposes, Joseph goes from pit to throne. Joseph's brothers ended up suffering themselves. His brothers suffered famine, as a re- and as a result, that sufferer in the pit, who is now on the throne, becomes their savior. And all the while, God was with Joseph, Emmanuel. God's presence continues to dwell with Joseph in Egypt because communion with God is not tied to a land. It's not tied to a building. And in that regard, Stephen's mention of Shechem is not a mere historical footnote. Shechem is the place where Abraham first built an altar and worshiped to the Lord and what later would be the promised land, long before there was a tabernacle or temple. Shechem was known as a sanctuary of the Lord, even though it had no temple, had no temple or tabernacle, and was not Jerusalem. In answering his critics, then, Shechem becomes reinforcement that communion with God is not tied to a building or a city. The third historical figure to whom Stephen appeals is the one who is most obvious in this trial still. Stephen stands before these men with shining face, and now he appeals to the figure whose face first shone. Beginning with verse 17, this is what God's word proclaims to us. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. So first Joseph, and now Moses. Stephen has drawn parallels between Joseph and Christ, and now he is already drawing parallels between Moses and Christ. Christ was born and grew in favor with God and man. He was brought up for three months in his father's house, verse 21, and he was exposed. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought her up as his own son. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his word and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So the first thing we see here about Moses, like Joseph, Moses is rejected by his brothers, the children of Israel. While Stephen does not necessarily condone Moses' killing of the Egyptians, it's quite clear... He places the thrusting aside of Moses the day after his intervention as an example of Israel's history of rejecting God's messengers. Isn't that an interesting interpretation of the Old Testament? Hebrews tells us that Moses renounced the treasures of Egypt and placed himself under the reproach of Christ. Moses, like Joseph, visited his brothers And seemingly expected them to recognize the obvious in his renunciation of Egypt's treasures and intervention on their behalf. They knew who Moses was. Moses knew what Israel should have recognized and acknowledged, that he was supposed to be their divine deliverer. Yet Moses' flesh and blood would have none of it, and as a result... Moses suffered exile as a result of that rejection, and Israel suffered another 40 years of horrendous slavery because they did not see in Moses a deliverer. Stephen continues his lesson in redemptive history. Verse 30, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, "'Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt.'" This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers." This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So like Joseph, Moses is rescued from his suffering to save a suffering people. God delivers his people through a ruler and redeemer who though rejected by the people, has been exalted and sent by God to be his representative in his congregation. All the while God was with Moses, just as God was with Abraham and Ur and Joseph in Egypt, God speaks to Moses from a burning bush in a wilderness that is far away from the promised land. There was holy ground outside of Jerusalem. The hallowed ground on which Moses stood was not tied to a plot of land or a building. There was no temple in Midian, save a burning bush. And if the Sanhedrin had missed now the connection between Moses and Jesus... Stephen, whose face is shining like Moses, draws the connection for them by quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 18.15, who spoke of another prophet to come for a people who were no longer interested in hearing God's voice at Sinai. The interesting thing about Stephen's quote is that he doesn't finish the sentence because he doesn't have to. Actually, Deuteronomy says... The Lord, God, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. The rest of the verse says, It is to him you shall listen. I will put words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Peter quotes the same verse to the same court in Acts 3. By now, the point's been made by the apostles and by Stephen to this Sanhedrin. Moses predicted one greater than himself who was coming, one from among their own nation, and God was going to require of the people acknowledgement of and obedience to this messenger. And what could not have, uh, have been missed by the Sanhedrin were the words raised up. (laughs) that phrase often used for raising the dead in quoting Moses Stephen gives his immediate audience a jolt because in hearing raised up these accusers of Stephen are brought face to face with the reality of Christ's resurrection which they themselves had attempted to cover up Moses' implication Moses is speaking to his people Moses is saying one greater than me is coming Stephen does not have to tell them. The rest of the verse says, you will listen or else. Moses' implication as he speaks to the people in Deuteronomy 18 is that the people will have to listen to the one greater who is coming because the essence is they haven't listened to him. They haven't listened to Moses. You better listen to the one coming. And that's Stephen's next point. Verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us, and for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt. We do not know what's become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to an idol. They were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the Israel uh, in the wilderness O house of Israel you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon (laughs) exile beyond Babylon sounds like extinction Despite the authority given to Moses by God through the burning bush, despite God's redemption, his obvious redemption of his people from Egypt through Moses through the Red Sea, despite the giving of the law through angels, the people rejected Moses again. And by implication in the word oracles, they also rejected the law of Moses, which had been received on Sinai. Their rejection was so thorough They wanted to go back to their enslavement and their idolatry in Egypt. Just as they thrust Moses aside 40 years earlier, they did so again at Sinai. Their heart attitude reveals itself in their longing for a tent when they didn't have one. They wanted worship. They wanted to see a golden calf. Even though God was to be worshipped at Sinai without a temple and without a tabernacle... The idolatrous people insisted on the idolization of a location for worship. And the indictment continues. Even when Israel had no temple, they insisted on putting the worship of God into a box. They had no land. They had no tabernacle. They had no temple, yet they insisted on one. They wanted a God they could see. They wanted a worship that they could manufacture and feel. So from the beginning of their nationhood, the posterity of this same Sanhedrin had been idolaters. And again, Stephen now is linking the Sanhedrin to their ancestors in a way that is most surely going to bring him harm. As Stephen starts in on the heart of the matter and the charge against him of blaspheming God and what they considered a lack of respect for the temple, he points out past idolatry to ground the Sanhedrin's current idolatry of the Jerusalem temple, putting God into a box. Stephen notes that Israel's idolatrous history of plagiarizing the temples of false gods just so they could satisfy their own idolatrous desire to have a building in which to worship. Worse, Stephen points out from the prophet Amos that their later idolatry was God's judgment for the earlier idolatry. The earlier gave rise to the later. Thus, you have him speaking of Israel turning away and then there's... He speaks of God turning away. By implication, this is happening uh, even as Stephen speaks to the Sanhedrin. Even as Stephen is speaking to the Sanhedrin, we are hearing Stephen say that in their fascination, and their idolatry with the temple, God is giving them over to their own idolatry. So Stephen's point has been made. God's abandonment of an idolatrous people has its just reward in the very idolatry of this Sanhedrin. In making his point, Stephen anticipates his own rejection in highlighting the rejection of Moses. And Stephen's defense that is that even though Moses was God's chosen ruler and redeemer of his people and leading them out of Egypt, even though Moses, God's spokesman, had a shining face after coming off of Mount Sinai with the law that had been written by God and delivered through angels, and even though God's Shekinah glory presence was among his people, Moses, the law, and true worship were rejected by the forerunners of the Sanhedrin. Moses himself spoke of one who was coming who would far surpass Moses, a better and greater lawgiver, mediating a new law written on the heart. Moses anticipated the rejection, and then Moses anticipates someone coming who is greater. That there would be one who is greater than Moses coming was the message of Moses to the people, and then both Moses and that message were rejected. And this one who would be a ruler and redeemer greater than Moses and who would dwell in the congregation, this one greater than Moses himself would be rejected. So Stephen, whose face is shining like an angel, is charged with blasphemy against God and his temple and Moses, and yet here he is defending Moses and his message. Does this sound like somebody who has been defacing the name of Moses? Does this sound like somebody who has dishonored the temple? In giving parallels to Joseph and Moses, Steve is showing that it's his accusers, not he, who have rejected Moses in the temple. And it's furthering his point about the nature of true worship in the temple. Stephen then appeals to two more figures who represent the glory of Israel. In the temple, David and Solomon, verses 44 and forward. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with, in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God. There's that found favor again. And asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You know, in the course of the history of redemption, God finally gave Israel a tabernacle and then a temple. That became his sanctuary among his people. Even then, although God's presence with Israel was symbolized in the tabernacle, it was a movable tent. The irony is that even as Israel's displacing the nations within the land, David's already eyeing a dwelling place for God, which would ultimately be not just for Israel, but for all the nations. David's thinking long term. While David wanted to build a dwelling place for God, he was told that his son would build the house for God. It was Solomon who built a house for God, but even Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, the apex of Israel's history, says this, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house I have built for you. And it was Solomon's prayer that from this temple, God's name would be glorified throughout all the earth. Solomon rightly understood. Even then, Solomon understood that God could not be contained in a building. He also understood that what happened in that building, God's presence was in effect supposed to bless all of the nations. It wasn't simply for Israel. Israel. Its effect was beyond the land, or was supposed to be. And Stephen, just like Solomon, does not believe that Solomon's temple was the ultimate fulfillment of that promise or prayer. Solomon understood it in his dedication, and Stephen picks up on it. David and Solomon, indeed the entirety of the tabernacle and temple system in the Old Testament, pointed forward to something better, something ultimate. Israel, in its idolatrous desire to worship something that could be seen had deluded itself into thinking that Solomon's temple and even Herod's temple in Jerusalem was the final product. Stephen makes his final appeal to the esteemed prophet Isaiah who asked in Isaiah 66, What's the house you would build for me and what's the place of my rest? Contrary to the practices of Stephen's immediate audience, Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament did not portray a God that could be shackled to a building. In fact, the Old Testament taught just the opposite. Any attempt to confine God in a building such as the temple amounts to idolatry. In invoking that text, Stephen drives home his indictment of his accusers because the statement in Isaiah 66 begins a prophecy. If you unpack the rest of Isaiah 66, what he quotes there is the beginning of a prophecy of judgment that is rendered by the Lord from the temple against those who have desecrated his temple and have cast true worshipers, those who are contrite and tremble at his word, out of the temple. Stephen brings Isaiah 66 home to bear on the Sanhedrin. And in pulling in the Sanhedrin into Isaiah 66, points the finger at them. That sound coming from the temple, Isaiah says, is the sound of the Lord rendering recompense against his enemies. That sound coming from the temple is against the Sanhedrin and its contempt for the temple and its contempt for the one whom the temple portrays. In rejecting the true temple of God, Jesus Christ, these men were no better than those who had worshipped the golden calf. They have their own golden calf. So Stephen answers the charges. Stephen, whose face shines like Moses at Sinai, has shown the Sanhedrin to be anti-law anti-temple and anti-Moses because they like their forebears have killed God's messenger of whom Moses and the law spoke just like they wanted to do with Moses and never did the temple is the primary point of attack for Stephen he's shown the Sanhedrin to be anti-temple they're the ones that believe to be the temple to be the end product they've cast out the true temple of God made without hands Jesus Christ notes Greg Beal Christ is the one who began to build the true temple composed of himself and his people Dennis Johnson writes Herod's temple has become obsolete with Stephen and the Sanhedrin exclusion from the edifice that dominated Zion was no longer exclusion from the courts of the Lord for Jesus was the new temple as well as the final deliverer It is this temple that they have cast out of their own temple made with hands. And in rejecting and killing Jesus, the true temple of God, the Sanhedrin's Jewish temple of worship has now itself become blasphemy. They've crucified the very person proclaimed in the very structure and practices of the original temple. In chaining themselves to an obsolete paradigm, They have failed to recognize that God cannot be restricted to any one building or land because the temple is a person. His presence cannot be localized. Stephen's defense of Christ and his church against the Sanhedrin is a defense that is still impacting the church today. The grand theme coursing through the veins of this sermon is going to energize the church's proclamation throughout the rest of the book under threat of persecution. But Stephen is not done. Having finished his defense against the charges, the defendant now becomes the prosecutor in a very direct way. And what happens next catapults the church out of Jerusalem and into the world with the gospel. Like the prophet Moses Whose blazing likeness he bears, Stephen emphatically places his audience, the Sanhedrin, into the Old Testament text and into the gospel story with unmistakable clarity. His words carry the weight of the radical assertions that have him there in the first place. Christ is the new temple. Christ is the new Torah. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen, again, is quoting Old Testament. (laughs) excuse me, Old Testament text, using it typologically to indict his audience. Notice that it's no longer our fathers, but your fathers. (laughs) If they have any problems identifying with their idolatrous ancestors, Stephen now is giving them no wiggle room with his exegesis. It was God who first labeled the disobedient Israelites as stiff-necked. Moses, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel equally described their generations as having uncircumcised hearts and ears. The Old Testament is full of examples and allusions to the murderous treatment that prophets received at the hands of their own brothers, the Israelites, who were bent on their perverted worship. This language is also reminiscent of Peter. Peter's charge against the Pentecost crowd in Acts 2 has become Stephen's charge against the Sanhedrin. This charge reverts the original charges back onto the original prosecutors. You're stiff-necked. It's not Stephen who had disparaged the temple or blasphemed Moses and the law. All through the Old Testament, disobedient and idolatrous Israel had obstinately rejected God's will for their worship. Before the original tablets were even off the mountain, they were broken in two. Why? Because in their desire for worship they could see, they had already rejected that law that was coming down to them. This law, more broadly termed the Torah, represented by the Ten Commandments, had been delivered in a blaze of Shekinah glory on Sinai, delivered by angels. In his last words to Israel, Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 33, the passage we read earlier, the law had been delivered in glory by angels. This makes it no ordinary law. This is a covenant that had been written by God's finger in the Shekinah glory of Sinai, delivered by angels and proclaimed by Moses with shining face. It was through this law that Deuteronomy 33, five tells us that God was declared king. God ruled and reigned his people through this law. God was exercising his authority, yet Israel, as Stephen has articulated, rejected Moses, rejected the law, and rejected God as his authority, as their authority. Historically, Israel had no room for Moses. They wanted delivered from the Egyptians, but they were not interested in the deliverer. They wanted a temple, but only so long as they could confine God to a box, as their captors had done with their own gods in Egypt. They wanted a covenant, but they didn't want a law that convicts of sin, driving them to place their faith in a future Messiah and his provisional sacrifice. They wanted covenant, not that one. They wanted law, not that one. They wanted a temple, not that one. They wanted a king, but not that one. They wanted idols, they wanted Egypt, they wanted freedom, not only from slavery, they wanted freedom from God. And the Israelites wanted a deliverer. They didn't want a Messiah. This much was true even in their pushing aside of Moses. Stephen shows that the Moses that the Sanhedrin thought that they held in high esteem. That Moses you think you like preached Christ, the one they had already crucified. He's the one of whom Moses spoke when he said, One greater than me is coming. Not only had they killed the prophets, they killed the one of whom the prophets were preaching. Moses and the prophets spoke of Christ and were killed for it, meaning any pending martyrdom for Stephen already has a lot of precedent in the Old Testament. Stephen, the accused-turned-prosecutor, is now handing down his indictment. There, before the Sanhedrin with shining face, Stephen is placing himself within the story of Sinai. Stephen, the one who does signs and wonders, like Moses, emphatically proclaims the obvious elephant in the room, my shining face is witness against you. In rejecting me, you are rejecting Moses and the law. The indicted has become the inditer. There's more, so much more. Stephen is not simply referring to Deuteronomy 33 here. He's not merely placing himself in the story of Sinai. Luke has already provided some backdrop for this story. And in the same region, there were shepherds in the field. An angel of the Lord appealed to them. Glory shone. With the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts appeared. Stephen is placing himself and pulling his audience within the story of Bethlehem. Something or someone greater than the Torah has been delivered by angels. And as the disobedient Israelites rejected what had been delivered by angels, so too disobedient Israelites, including this same Sanhedrin, had rejected the fulfillment and realization of the law which had been had accompanied by angels to Bethlehem. Now that this new law, coming as the new covenant, has been delivered by angels, the old covenant and its attending law have been rendered obsolete. If the temple has found its fullest and highest meaning in Jesus, so too has the law. If the temple is no longer needed because the full expression of the temple has come in the person of Jesus Christ, so too the law. Stephen's message is that even though the witnesses who have charged him with these accusations, these witnesses are false those charges have actually rung true. The temple and the law are no longer necessary because they have been fulfilled in the promised Messiah. The destiny of the temple and the law have found their highest and fullest meaning and expression in Jesus who embodies both temple and law. Into the Old Testament line of martyr prophets, Stephen places the baby delivered by angels to be the new Torah. The ultimate law by whom all morality will subsequently be measured has been delivered in Shekinah glory by angels to Bethlehem. It's that baby who is both law and lawgiver who will be martyred by disobedient Israelites. It is the suffering servant of Isaiah The righteous one who numbered himself with the transgressors and made many righteous. It's the righteous ruler and redeemer that Zechariah says would come riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey that's been betrayed and murdered. Surrounded by a heavenly host giving praise to God, the new Torah has been delivered and subsequently rejected. Just as Israel had done to so many prophets who had proclaimed the Messiah's coming. The staunch defenders of Moses and his law turned around and scorned and summarily executed a greater prophet than Moses who put flesh and bones on a law that gives life. Stephen's apologetic is no longer a defense but an indictment. The charges are now in tatters. The Sanhedrin has been upstaged. Stephen has used the very Old Testament and its law that's so so idolatrously prized by this Sanhedrin to show that those charges are both true and without merit. Stephen has also tied his life to the gospel of the new covenant. He has sealed his own doom by not only affirming Christ's claims to be in the new temple and the law's fulfillment by also masterfully using the Old Testament scriptures in proving Christ's claims. In rejecting the Messiah and the new covenant that he has ushered in, the Sanhedrin and the Jews rejected the very law and the very Old Testament that they claim to honor. In rejecting Christ, the Sanhedrin identifies themselves with the disobedient Israelites that rejected Joseph and Moses. But Stephen's indictment, effective as it has been, has not reached its climax. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So Stephen's end is inevitable. His goal was to draw parallels between himself and Christ. He certainly has accomplished that goal. (laughs) His effect on his accusers was the same as Christ had been. Rage with a mob mentality. One must wonder, as the crowd sees under its own indictment, is nobody going to come to Stephen's defense? Where are Stephen's defenders? Is there no one who will make a statement on his behalf against these charges? If this is the rising star in the church, where is the defense attorney? If the Sanhedrin thought that Stephen was standing alone in their courtroom, what happens next proves them so dreadfully wrong. But he, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We now know why Stephen's face has been shining like Moses. Stephen was never alone in this courtroom. This is no mere vision. At the end of his defense, Stephen sees the exalted and glorious Son of Man, the enthroned Messiah, whose clothing was white as snow, whose throne is flaming fire, Daniel 7. This is the only place outside of the Gospels that Jesus is referred to as Son of Man. And he here is in all his majestic glory. Jesus, the Son of Man, to whom all authority to rule and glory in a kingdom has been given, is standing at the right hand of God. And don't miss that. Don't miss that. Where does Peter say Christ is at the right hand? Has Peter not already stated in Acts that Christ is seated? Why is Christ standing? Christ is standing because it's the advocate in a courtroom who stands in defense of the accused. Stephen has already referred to this advocate as the righteous one, which is a judicial term, a designation that denotes Christ's role as a mediator on behalf of his people. Stephen saw what John the Apostle wrote about when he said, We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Stephen has been confessing Christ to the Sanhedrin. Now Christ confesses the preacher to the Sanhedrin. The turn of events against the Sanhedrin is now complete. They have accused Stephen of blaspheming the temple and Moses. Those accusations, you blaspheme the temple and Moses, only gave rise to a face that is shining like Moses. They have accused Stephen of denigrating the temple and Moses, only to have Stephen use the Old Testament to prove who the real idolaters are. They have accused Stephen of denigrating the temple only to have the real temple break in on their courtroom Christ is here as heaven breaks into the trial accused of disparaging and reviling the temple Stephen now sees the heavenly temple which he has been defending now imposing itself onto the trial this is no longer the Sanhedrin's courtroom this courtroom belongs to heaven It hasn't been Stephen on trial. It has been Christ on trial again. And at the end of Stephen's defense of the gospel, Stephen, unlike we see the popular thing with Martin Luther, Stephen does not say, here I stand. No, Stephen in his trial is saying, there Christ stands. There stands the righteous one who is greater than Abraham, greater than Joseph, greater than Moses. The one of whom Moses preached is here. Christ invades the Sanhedrin's courtroom standing as an advocate for the defenseless witness Stephen and does so in a way that is reminiscent of the Holy of Holies in Shekinah glory. Christ invades the courtroom with the temple from heaven and the Sanhedrin has been trumped. Regardless of what the Sanhedrin does next, Stephen cannot be condemned because he's been vindicated by the righteous one in the courtroom of heaven. Stephen's vindication is from none other than the one who had been delivered by angels and had been rejected and martyred himself by the same Sanhedrin in one great display of vindication Christ the advocate from the courtroom of heaven declares this defendant belongs to me everything he has said about me here is the truth Stephen has borne witness to me I now bear witness to Stephen in spite of the inbreaking of heaven In spite of the Shekinah glory on Stephen's face, the Sanhedrin boil over into a rage. We're not told that they could see everything that Stephen was seeing, but they certainly knew full well the implications of what he was saying and why he was saying it. And they certainly saw his face. The Sanhedrin fully aware of these Old Testament texts, the very same texts they themselves had studied. They are fully aware of the implications of damnation and judgment on them. They know exactly what Stephen is saying in his declaration of Christ now invading the trial. given Christ's invasion of the courtroom the execution is almost anticlimactic Christ was killed for claiming to be a new temple and the fulfillment of the law as the Messiah who had been promised now Stephen has drawn such close parallels between himself and Christ that his execution almost seems to be expected in another piece of irony the murderous Sanhedrin proved themselves to be those of the disobedient Israelites. (laughs) Just as Stephen had been arguing all along, they now act like the disobedient Israelites and kill the prophet. Like Moses, like all of the other prophets, and like Christ, like the law incarnate delivered by angels, Stephen is rejected with shining face. Stephen has spoken the new Torah to the people and has been brushed aside. Having been indicted by Stephen who vindicates Jesus and who himself is now vindicating Stephen by the radiant Son of Man in that courtroom of heaven, they are now reacting in concert with those who wanted to kill Joseph and Moses and certainly did kill the prophets and ultimately did kill Jesus. The radiant Son of Man in the courtroom of heaven, vindicate Stephen. Now they vindicate the indictment against them. The temple and the law have found their full and final expression in the one who has been exalted to God's right hand. Christ's exaltation in Shekinah glory set over against the temple and law in obsolescence is more than this disobedient crowd can handle. They killed Christ They now kill the one whose face radiates Christ's glory. Stephen's last words testify to his close parallel to Christ. Both statements, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not hold this sin against them, are also on the lips of Jesus as he hung on the cross. Just as Christ forgives his killers, so too Stephen forgives his killers. In saying that Stephen fell asleep... Luke's words about Stephen's death are a dramatic contrast to the violent death that he suffered. Stephen falls asleep in the midst of a murderous rage. He submissively places his life in the hands of the one who ushered in the age of the new covenant with his blood, a new covenant that has rendered temple, Moses, and the law obsolete. And here in the courtroom of heaven... Christ, that new covenant, not only stands in defense of his own, Christ, the righteous one, is now standing to receive Stephen into the heavenly temple made without hands to receive a law that has been delivered by angels. Stephen now receives in his indictment and in his death the full expression and full measure of everything that had been portrayed in the temple and the law. If they thought they were going to kill Stephen, they'd give Stephen everything he ever wanted. In a new temple, in a new Torah, a new covenant, certainly the glory of Jesus encompasses Stephen as he lies dying because Stephen is dying the death of someone who believes fully that Jesus is the full expression of of everything the Old Covenant ever said he would be. Amen. Much is made of Stephen's martyrdom, and rightly so, yet in these verses there is subtle detail thrown in that's meant to grab the attention of the reader. New name is introduced into the story almost as an afterthought, but it's not. Stephen has been the rising star of the early church. And Theophilus thought that he was going to be it those aren't in the plans in God's upside down way of doing things it would not be the one that we might expect God to use to, to light the world on fire the mantle is passed so to speak yet this rising star of the early church is within the ranks of the Pharisees Saul will inflict much harm on the early church, but the man who had come to influence Christian history like no other will never forget this incident. And I'm convinced not only does Paul bring up Stephen in later testimony, the accusations against Stephen become foundation, foundational for all of Paul's theology. Right. Coursing through his preaching and writing are the temple made without hands, Christ's fulfillment of the law, and following in Christ's steps to the point of martyrdom. This same observer will later write that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Amen. The Sanhedrin may have been able to kill the messenger, but ultimately, they were powerless to kill the message.